Okay, so we have with us here Lola Alvarez Romano. How, how do you pronounce that exactly, yes, Lola? Yes, Alvarez Romano, yes. Thank you very much for joining the podcast. Uh, and we also have James Gordon with us as well. Hi there. Hi, James. How are you doing? Yes, good. You all right? <laughs> so, Lola, you're a child and adolescent psychotherapist. Yes, I am, yes. Uh, and you work in the NHS, yes, right? Yes, I do. Uh, and you also um, uh, 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 are working in um, some schools, or is it one particular school? I just work in one particular special yeah. school, yes. Right, a, in... A primary school. A primary North, school. Yeah, in North London. Mm. Great, yeah. And so this is what we want to talk about. Lola's doing some very, very interesting work in this school, supporting parents and carers with their mental health. Uh, as we said, Lola's a, a, a child and adolescent psychotherapist, so she's an expert in in me- the mental health, I suppose, of parents and carers of family, of yes. child, yeah, yeah, in this whole area. Uh, so um, the work that you're doing is very very interesting. I'd like to get into that, and I think it might be very useful for others to learn about it and perhaps think about implementing something like this in their schools or in their settings. Uh, so we'll get into that. But first, uh, Lola, if you don't mind, just talking a little bit about how you entered the world of. Um, uh, uh, child and adolescent psychotherapy and also autism in particular because this is we have a very particular mm. focus and interest in, in autism and mental health of course mm-hmm. so. Child and adolescent psychotherapy is something that I've always wanted to do um, I started being interested in it from a very young age really from when I was an adolescent um, my first degree was in, uh, in I'm a pedagogue from the University of Barcelona uh, so you were raised in Barcelona yes, right yeah, that's your yes that's yeah. where I was born Excellent. Uh, and um, I was interested in psychoanalysis. Uh, it's just that at that time, you know, it's a long time ago, things weren't so easily accessible there for that sort of training. And then I moved to London anyway. And uh, in London, I started sort of looking for opportunities to develop that. Mm. When did you come to London? In 1986. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, I had come earlier, but I came permanently mm. when I gra- graduated from university, mm. uh, which was in 1986, so I came straight after that. Mm. Um, and I continued to train here. It was a lot easier to, to train in London in that sort of thing. So I first took a course in, I can't remember exactly what the name was, counselling skills in with psychoanalytic something or other. Um, and then I found the Tavistock Centre, which is where I trained. So I started sort of inquiring about courses there. And that's how I got into it, really. Okay. It's quite a long training because you have to do the preclinical part, which is the observational studies part, which is, well, I did it in three years. It's going to be that in two years. And then I took some time to work in schools a bit more. And then I trained as a psychotherapist which is the clinical training the doctoral training is another four years full time and that finished yeah I did that I qualified in 2009 even though I was interested in autism the place where I trained um, generally learning disabilities were diverted to a different part of the service so I didn't get to do any during my training Hmm. so that was a bit of a gap for me and I was interested in it um my first job after qualifying was as a primary mental health worker, as an outreach sort of service from CAMS, which is Child and Adolescent Mental Health. And what we were doing then was we were doing mental health assessments in schools. 
This is as uh, within you, the NHS, right? Yes, yeah, yeah we were mm. sort of linked mm. to, to the CAM service, CAM service in that NHS, yeah. operating in schools mm. for several reasons. One of them was that a lot of families are reluctant to go to a clinic, but they will access mental health support if it's provided within the school because it's, you know, it's less stigmatized and it's more accessible. They go to the school anyway to talk to teachers and to discuss their child. So that was one of the reasons why this service was actually quite effective in a lot of ways. So when I joined this team, we were sort of saying who was going to get which schools. And at that time, there was an initiative from the, from the government, from the Labour government, that was called TAMS, which was targeting mental health in schools. And the schools had to sign up to this. So they had to provide a sort of a bit of backup for the scheme to be operating. And it was a more intensive intervention. So the the team was sort of uh, was funded by the local authority and the NHS, um, and it was accessible to all the schools in the in the borough of Barnet. But this TAMS intervention was a bit more intensive. So instead of going once a fortnight, I was going one, once a week to the TAMS schools. Mm-hmm. So the schools had to provide a bit more, but they also got a bit more. Was there something in particular about the types of schools that were signing up as opposed well, to the ones that weren't? Uh, no, I think it was it was quite random actually because okay. there were some secondaries, some mm. primaries, and some special schools. Mm. There is four special schools in the borough. Two of them signed up, two of them didn't. Okay, it was a bit of an experimental thing, and you know, like the, these initiatives are put in place that if they work out, then they, the government, <laughs> you know, was hoping to implement that more widely. You know, the government changed, and it all changed as well with austerity and everything else. But um, when they were sharing the schools. Nobody wanted the special schools. People were not particularly interested in working in special schools. And that was the gap for me. That was the only place where I hadn't worked. So the psychotherapists weren't... Were uh, yes, they weren't all psychotherapists. There was, there was ah, sort of people with various, various. trainings. Some of them were family therapists. Some of them mm. were uh, primary mental health mm. workers. So it was a varied team. So, these, so, so the allocation, there was, an, there was a sort of an interesting observation about the... The, yes. the focus of particular specialists and professionals uh, and their choices as to which schools that's to, right to, yes uh, what, and what I, do you think that's about what, what's interesting well, I think you know um, I did wonder because I was very keen to because I thought well I'll do something new and it can be something a bit experimental I think you know uh, it's I do wonder whether there is some unconscious sort of bias about people being reluctant to work with special needs adults or or they I don't know or children or the world of special needs mm. is something that they may not know about mm. and well as you uh, mentioned before there was a gap in the Tavistock training in this area well, wasn't there not in the Tavistock training there was a gap in the clinic that I was in oh okay, okay. because no the Tavistock mm. is very it's sort of broad. encompassing mm, of, of special mm. sc- uh, special needs and they have you know they have allocated teams and seminars and all of that uh, dedicated to learning disabilities and autism and everything. Uh, it was in the clinic that I was in, it just so happened that things were triaged before they got... So I was in the in the sort of generic camps and learning disabilities went to a different service that was near us. So I didn't get the opportunity to, to do that there. But I knew it was something that I did want to look into and explore mm. and perhaps get a chance of... Okay, so uh, you chance to work there. Mm. So when when the schools were were sort of being shared out within mm-hmm. the team, I was 
you know, I said, no, I'll do the special schools. I, you know, that's interesting for me. I'll do something new and see what happens. Um, How long ago was this? Uh, this was 10 years ago. Mm. So I then what happened? I was just newly qualified. So what I did, I went to two special schools. One was a primary, one was a secondary. And, you know, it was a bit experimental, the whole thing. So I, I had a meeting with the teachers to see, and to, with deputy head and that sort of, you know, just to discuss what sort of contribution I could make that would be useful to them. And we had several discussions and I spoke to the teachers and, and uh, we made a plan. And I was going to, because I was going to both of them once a week, one, one day a week. So it was quite a big resource for them. Mm. So what we did is we divided our t- my time in between doing classroom observations, which meant I was sitting in the classroom and then sort of noticing things about the children and the dynamics and everything and then having a, a lengthy consultation with the teacher afterwards hmm. just to sort of to you know hmm. perhaps make them aware of what might be going on and and how the children were reacting to certain things and not to others and that sort of thing even though a lot of the teachers were very experienced it was just having like a third eye on hmm. what was happening then I was also doing word discussion groups which means that the teachers afterwards, after the children go home, we were having a discussion in the format of my training, which is one of the teachers presenting a particular case or sharing the time between two teachers and then talking about a special, a particular child that they may be struggling with or a family or a particular dynamic that was happening. And then all of us thinking together about what that might be about from a mental health perspective. Excellent. Um, and then the third thing that I did was child and family work, which is, you know, the sort of the more usual conventional child psychotherapy intervention. And that was with children alone uh, or with the children and their parents. There were children in both schools that were um, causing concern to the teachers or the parents had gone to the school to ask for help in managing whatever it was that they were that was going on. And I did that in both schools, in the primary and the secondary school. Hmm. And actually, it was very successful, the whole thing. It started off as a bit of an experiment, but, you know, it sort of took off quite well. I was also linking up with the bit of CAMS that was that works with special needs, with disabilities. So I was attending some of their meetings. And in fact, I was doing some of the work that would have gone to them if I hadn't done it in the, in the school. But so it was kind of a good, a good connection to have. Um, so, so the work you're so that's fa- a really interesting, uh, fascinating um, uh, explanation of how you entered this this field and the work, some of the work that you've been doing. Could you talk to us a little bit about the work you're doing today in in the school? Yes, yeah, that's that, well. Yeah. It came from there because uh, after it worked so well in these two schools, we went to the other two schools who haven't signed up to, um, if you like, sell the service. And one of the schools, which is the one that I'm in now, bought it. Oh, right, I see. <laughs> and they said, oh, yeah. this is really interesting. And so it was this... because of the good work that you'd done previously yeah, that it attracted had, the other I school. I tried something, I felt it had worked, mm. so I was able to offer, said, well, I've done this for a year and a half, working well, how about mm. doing it here? And uh, one of the schools said, yes, that's exactly what we need, because the head teacher had noticed that um, 
when they had concerns about a, a child, it was often because something was happening at home. And once the parents access support, things got better with the child as well. Sort of things settled down at home and, and um, there was an indirect way of promoting good mental health for the child. And the family, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, the the system needed to change in some way. So this particular head teacher had this vision be- before even I turned up in her office. Mm. <laughs> and when we had a long talk about it, she said, "Yes, let's try it out." And we did. How long ago was this? Over seven years ago, I think. Mm-hmm. Now coming up to eight years, approximately. Wow. Mm. And then I was going to leave that job. Uh, so the head teacher said, "Oh, you can't leave us now." So then I started to work for them. Directly? Directly, in-house. yeah. yeah. Oh, I see, right. Yeah. And so at the moment you're, you're working in-house at this particular school one, yeah, one, one day, day a week? week. Yes. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what is it? So tell us, that's really fascinating, thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what exactly, how do you spend that one day a week? What service do you provide? And uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Well, the idea is to provide um, support for families, really. That's the main uh, aim of my presence there. It could be that the teachers are concerned about the family or it could be that the parents come in and they feel overwhelmed and they say that they need help. So it's a combination of things. It's sort of sometimes things are offered to the parents, you know, from the, the head teacher might do that or the class teacher, but the parents may not want it and that actually has to be respected. And by the way, just, just to sort of clarify for listeners, you're mm-hmm. you're working specifically in a a special school, primary school, aren't you? Correct, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, so the it's parents, a school for children with yeah. profound and multiple disabilities. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. So, you know, the parents and carers that you're talking to, uh, you know, perhaps have some shared experience. So there's there's, there's perhaps um, mm. some common themes, perhaps, that may... There are, yeah. there are some, but, you know, everybody... Is different. Yeah. Yes, yeah. everybody has yeah. their own experience of what it means to them to have a child with a disability. Mm. Um, so what are some of the what are some of the sort of you know observations let's say that you've picked up on from parents and carers in terms of their concerns or areas that you feel that you need to particularly support are there any big issues or main issues or is is it really everybody's entirely different I think um, everyone's different there are some common themes and the themes are around the, the thing that they all have in common I think is the concern about the child's progress and about the future. Mm. Mm. I think that's sort of across the board. I think everybody experiences having a child with a disability differently. And it has to do with what what their own expectations are about what their life, they thought their life was going to be and how they picture themselves having a family and how different it can be from what they're actually experiencing. I think it depends on whether they have other children who are neurotypical. I think if they have an experience of parenting which is in an ordinary way, it can also be different for them, having a child with a disability. Um, I think it depends on a lot of things. It depends on the, the amount of support they have around them. Does, does culture play a role? Um, do, do perhaps, are there some families that come from particular ethnic or cultural backgrounds that you know, perhaps uh, magnify some of the uh, issues in terms of, you know, the the hope that they would have led a particular type of life that they're not now, you know, put sort of cultural expectations as to what... Um, No, I think different cultures perhaps have slightly 
different sort of nuances to mm. what they expect. Um, I think for some cultures, the fact that the child will not get married, for example, or is unlikely to get married or find a partner, mm. is a big deal. In other cultures, this doesn't really enter their minds. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about. Um, yeah, things like that. Um, you know, for, in some mm. cultures, there's a much bigger stigma because it's right. not really understood. Mm. So the parents find it harder to explain to their relatives or to travel to their own countries if people there are not going to understand why their child is behaving in a certain way or why the child needs a certain thing at a certain point. And stigma, does that play a big role in, in the, the mental health? Of... Yes, I think it does. I think it does. Um, I think the UK is quite well educated in that way. I think people slowly are getting, you know, used to accepting all, you know, accepting all kinds of lifestyles and and mm. ways of behaving and and you know, there's a lot of a few campaigns have been done which I think have helped. I don't think that's the case for other countries. Mm. Uh, but regardless, do you feel that there is a stigma towards parents and carers in the way that perhaps? They're, they're dealing with their child, the parenting style. You know, are there, is is um, is there a lot of stigma or some stigma sometimes directed to them as parents? I think parents may feel that way. I don't know if there is, but mm. that's what parents experience at times. Mm. That they're, um, I think they feel isolated. Uh, I think when you have a child who is healthy and you know neurotypical, you your social network normally expands because you meet parents in the school gate and you meet parents in the toddler groups and you meet parents and you accumulate friends along the way uh, with your children might play with their children and and that's sort of how your network grows if there are grandparents in the family the grandparents are more than happy to take the grandchild to their friends or for holidays or whatever so there is something about that uh, when you have a child with special needs, your network shrinks because the friends that you may have had who have neurotypical children, you can the children can mix when they're sort of very young, but as the children grow, the differences are Increase. become more more acute, mm. um, and these parents feel that, for example, taking a three-year-old child with autism to a, a birthday party, which could be very noisy and and loud and lots of children running around and color and sort of this sensorially overloaded that that doesn't work or may not work for their child so as the parents sort of learn to get to know their child they begin to make choices that are more appropriate for the child's needs and that often means that they cannot share you know a lot of the social uh, aspects that they would have done ordinarily even within their own families. I mean, I'm not just talking about friends. It's also within their own families. Mm. And, and and social support is obviously important, right? I think it is, mm. yes. I think um, having a parent with special needs puts you to the test more. I, that's my view than ordinary parenting. I think you are always in a bit of... You're always having to do a lot of guessing and observing and... Um, you know, the child. If your child is not verbal, they cannot say to you what hurts or what it hurts, or when they're not comfortable. So you have to be very, very attentive uh, to you know to how your child feels. For parents, this is this is quite a challenge. Um, for some of them, learn you know as they go along that it, it takes sometimes it takes some time. That in combination with the isolation that they may experience from friends or family or 
can be quite difficult. Mm. I absolutely agree. What is your evaluation in terms of this this population? Let's say you know parents and carers of children with additional needs and complex needs. What what's your feeling having you know worked with this population for quite a while now? Uh, with regard to their mental health generally, do you think they are? Are we dealing with a particularly vulnerable population? Do they generally have quite fragile mental health, or does in some cases it strengthen their well-being? You know, the sort of experience. It's interesting. I think obviously, I, once again, you cannot generalize, but there's a number of parents who have said to me that if they hadn't had a child with special needs, they wouldn't have become who they are. A, a mother said to me. Once I used to be very meek and very shy. Now, nothing gets in my way. If I want something for my son, you know, I'm willing to fight all the way. So parents find that this sort of they have to become quite militant, whether they like it or not, mm-hmm. uh, and and that actually brings something out in themselves that they didn't know they had, or sometimes they see their friends having the life that they thought they would have wanted for themselves. And sometimes that life might become, might seem to them to be, you know, perhaps a bit nice, but perhaps in some ways a bit shallow. Mm. That they haven't had to think as hard as they have. You know, out of every experience, if you can use it, growth comes. So I think a lot of parents feel that they have grown as a result of having to care for a child who's very vulnerable and, you know, who they have to become their advocates as well um, mm. so I think there is growth in it in between the pain and the, the challenges uh, there is mm. growth and I think that's you know really important. A, a good thing yeah, yes. yeah, yeah absolutely mm. you can find a lot of meaning in that journey right yes and I think but I think perhaps what I find in my sessions with parents is that they don't always realise that until we spend a bit of time thinking about it Really, a lot of parents come to me in the state of being chronically frazzled and not knowing what to do and, you know, a bit what do you desperate. Mean by that, chronically frazzled? That they are, especially if, if it's sort of early on in the journey, the, the parent feels discilled by having to parent a child who is very challenging and who still may not be sleeping and who still may not be doing a lot of things that they thought they would do. Um, Sometimes the extent of the diagnosis is not known when they're very little uh, because obviously 18-month-old children don't always speak uh, or don't always do certain things. So it's as they grow up that the parents realize the extent to which their child is not going to meet certain expectations. So in the midst of that, they could be dealing with other things like you know fatigue and embarrassment and... Um, all kinds of things. So but sometimes when they come, they're in a kind of not knowing what to do sort of state. And, you know, I'm very fortunate that I can see parents for a, a long time. The school is very good at allowing me to work quite freely in that way. So I can see parents for months or years if, if that's... And that's a really good resource yeah. Uh, so once the parents find the space in which they can explore this with another mind at some length and you know feel feel that you know that can be a very useful space often when they first come they're still traumatized by the diagnosis and that doesn't happen to all parents but it happens to some 
that they are still trying to swallow that this is not what I had in mind. And for some of them, this takes some time. It's a, it's a difficult one. Um, well, well, I mean, it's fantastic what you're doing. You know, I mean, what worries me is that you, you know, we know that these parents often or carers are often, you know, struggling with, you know, the, the enormity of and the surprise of the diagnosis. It wasn't, as mm. you say, what they mm. had in mind. So they're, they're going to be in quite a vulnerable position often. So having something like your service to access is could be, you know, everything for them, right? You know, if, if they don't have a service to access like this, then it's a real problem. On the other hand, it's also a problem if the service exists, but they, for whatever reason, choose not to access it. Um, is that has that been your experience? That has sometimes? happened sometimes. Sometimes parents yeah. have come. I always offer a session initially to just for them to come and meet with me and have a chat and then they can decide or they can come two or three times and then decide whether that's for them or not. Occasionally, not very often actually, but occasionally parents have decided not to come um, because they just, I think for some of them it feels as if um, I cannot offer any solutions in that their child still is, you know, hmm. is what it is. They want quick solutions. Well, they yeah. would like yeah. something sort of, or they would love it to. They would like to be able to feel differently straight away. Mm. Mm. Uh, perhaps they don't realize that there is a process uh, attached to it. Mm. Uh, some parents are still incredibly angry about what has happened to them, and no amount of sort of talking about it is going to. I think they need to get past. I think it's all a question of stages, really. And some parents are still furious. And if you try to understand their experience, they're still furious with whoever's in front of them. And Fury about what? About what they feel is the unfairness. Why me? You know, once a mother said to me, you know, in my family there is so-and-so who doesn't take care of her children and she has perfectly healthy children. You know, I always wanted to have children and then I was so keen and I was so looking forward to it. Why do they have to have a child with this? They feel it's an unfair mm. share of things. The why me is a, is quite a, a common feeling. Uh, why did I have to do this? Why did what, why did this happen to me and not to so and so? Who, you know? So they have to sort of you know in some way get past that anger and that fury and and that um, you know that whole situation to be able to access support and go with go through the stages, go through the journey. There has to be some sort of. Uh, transition between those two stages. Yes, is that right? I think there is there is a like I said, it's it's always a process, and I think mm. when while they're still sort of angry, there is a I think to myself that that also impacts the relationship with their own child, because their own child is being in a position of permanently dis- disappointing them, uh, and that's difficult for a child to feel that you know this is not they're not doing what they should be doing, whatever that is. Uh, and they will feel that won't mm, they yeah well you know parents feelings can be you know very intense at different points and um, I mean children will feel the love won't they well it's it's love and it's acceptance I think you know most parents love their children Mm. but I think accepting them and and that goes for all parents, not just parents yeah. of children with disabilities. Yeah. I think parents of main, mainstream children yeah. sometimes cannot accept their own children because they want them to be something, and the children decide to be something else, mm. or you know 
they may have a lifestyle choice that the parents don't approve of. So accept- acceptance is quite a big thing for, with regards to parenting and having children. You know, your children are not clones of the parents, nor they are your property. The children are beings with their own lives. And they just happen to be born in your family with some of your genetic you know, makeup. But mm. children are people who are born and they are who they are. And I think um, parenting is sort of... I think there's always a compromise between what you would like them to be and what they are. And something in between is, you know... Social expectations that have been programmed into you, you know, for your socialization. Or you as a person, yes. You know, yeah, or you as a yeah, person that, yeah. you know, you always dreamt your child would be, mm. I don't know, something in particular. Uh, Maybe we need to be thinking about this more more broadly, you know, about you know, the messages we're giving, you know, people as to what what is acceptable or what is desirable in terms of their, you know, future parenting. You know, I mean, parents have this idea, right, that it's, it should hopefully be this one, mm. this one way. They get these ideas from the media and, you know, family around them. But, but it'd perhaps mm. be nice if there was a, a bit of a social shift towards emphasising that diversity and, and different different situations and different challenges is is okay right and you know maybe if if we sort of process that and um had that conversation a bit earlier it might remove some of the shock and some of the anger if it happens you see i agree but i don't think that's possible because i think parenting is such a natural thing in life Mm. you know people have been having children for thousands of years and nobody gives it so much thought. People just have a child because it's the natural drive of, of for, for a lot of people in the human. But, but you know when you know. So world. for example, I went to this thing called NCT. You know, it's this when, when my wife. Childless trust. Yeah. So when my when my um, my my wife was pregnant, yeah, with our first, who ended up being autistic. Um, you know, there was nothing about it in those classes. You know, there was nothing like you know. Well, by the way. You know, a parenting can can take many different forms, and perhaps you should, you know, uh, understand that you know if this happens, then there are support. It's it's okay. You know, you know, and some sign at least start thinking about it and talking about it. You know, I think there are points in the process. I mean, I'd say that the pregnancy point is the latest point. You know, I'm thinking even earlier that we could maybe have some of these conversations because it is, it it could it could only help. I think possibly, mm. yeah. It's interesting. Yes, I don't know. I, I hadn't thought of it in terms of. I mean, I'm thinking of a big ideological. You know, I'm a bit I, of an ideological think, person. I, think, you know, <laughs> I, I do encounter this mm. in my work in in a camps clinic, which is a generic camps, and mm. this is for children and families of all kinds. Uh, that a lot of parents don't like what they've got, mm. or they don't agree, or they are very challenged by the child's choices. Uh, and sometimes it's it's a bit of a long conversation to say, well, you know, this is who they are. And, you know, even if they take after a, a, an eccentric relative, this See, is who they are. The problem is that they, these people often only begin to first think about it when they're in the situation, right? Mm. You know, the sort of, um, you know, coping with the reality, adjusting to the reality. But if they'd, all, you know, if it'd already be something that they thought about, as we think about many other things, you know, then it... It may help. It's at the moment socially, yes, culturally, it would be like a preventive the, sort yeah, of. Yeah, we don't do anything about this. Mm. You know, we we just hope it doesn't happen at the mm. moment, right? Media portrays, 
you know, portrays it in a way that's desirable in, in a very sort of limited, restricted way, you know. But but we don't want to have that conversation. You know, it's a difficult conversation. It maybe. is a difficult yeah. conversation, yes. Mm, a bit of a shame, perhaps. It is, yeah. yes. But James, you've, if you don't mind me asking, yeah. if you don't mind me saying, you've, you've experienced this service, right? You've, yeah. This is how you met Lola. Yeah, for a few years. Yeah, yeah. So it'd be great to have maybe... Um, your your take on the service a little bit and and how you know what you, any yeah, thoughts yeah. you had. Um, so I was having some problems. Uh, my mum is getting on in years, so because of that, I was having some problems coping with that, and that's how I got um, told about the service by a um, member of staff in the school. And they said, "Would you like some extra support?" And I'm always happy to grab extra support. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm very happy, obviously that. Um, the school has done this and Lola you've given your time to do it and um, you know I couldn't be happier it, as you said it, it's a um, big journey that we're all going on as uh, parents of children with additional needs and it's been really helpful to have that kind of space you know a, a couple of hours a month to talk it through with you and, and um, you know because sometimes we put off these conversations when we're on our own, it is very isolating. Um, I don't have a big family or <laughs> a lot of friends anyway. So, um, but it, it's it's really really valuable to have that that conversation, um, and then you can come to some conclusions. You can plan out what you're going to do next. And um, mm-hmm. it's a lot of signposts. You've you signposted me to things. I've mm-hmm. signposted you maybe to a few things. <laughs> This podcast, so, yeah, <laughs> this podcast, for example. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's been it's been really really good, um, and I I hope um, other schools think about similar services. You know, implementing similar services because I think it's really needed. Um, if only every school did it, there'd be a, a lot less problems. You know, further down the line. You know, definitely. Yeah, I mean, mental health is everything, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because you know? oh. well, once you as a parent, your mental health. Uh, stabilizes you know that then you've got more energy and and that transfers into your care for your child mm. and then you're strengthening their mental health you know and and what you're saying about parents are uh, disappointed that their children haven't made progress but maybe if their <laughs> if their energies were taken up with less fixation on the disappointment then they could put more energy into helping their child make progress so it's like they're stuck in a loop and mm. it's only you know uh, coming out of it will only um, impact positively on their their children in the long run you know yes I, I agree and I think I think you're right some parents find learn to find the joy in the progress and that's a wonderful moment for us for the parents and for me when the parent says oh I'm so pleased he or she has managed to do this. And so they actually can, in a way, they can adjust their parenting expectations to what their child can do. And that is absolutely a moment of joy. I agree with you. Rather than being fixated on all the things that they cannot do or they will not do, um, you know, they have to... What, what breaks the chain, Lola? What, is it, is it, have you had any thoughts on that, any perceptions? I think it's a process. I don't think there is a particular point. I think uh, some parents take longer and some others take shorter. But I think, um, you know, when they come to see me, we don't set an agenda. 
we just give a space and the space can be used for whatever the parent wants. Interestingly, some parents put the child at the center of that and talk about the child the whole time and, you know, what they can do and, you know, sort of their questions about whatever it is. Some other parents use it as a space for themselves, for their own mental health, for, to talk about their marriage if they're concerned, to talk about all kinds of things. So it's a space that can be used quite freely. I don't set an agenda and... And often when the parents talk about their own well-being and they find answers for themselves in their own life, that also impacts positively on family life and the child. But some of them accept the disability in the child and that's, the child is hardly ever mentioned, interestingly. Mm. Um, it's mentioned in the sense of, oh, I need to go somewhere and I don't know who to live in with or who to live with. But beyond the sort of logistics and practical aspects of life some parents just have an acceptance and that's you know that's how they go they go through life but sometimes their own lives for reasons of you know all kinds maybe they're in a crisis after they've separated or because that's another thing that having a child with with a disability puts pressure on marriages why is that why is that do you think Well, because there is two people having to come to terms with it and two of them could be having very different experiences of what it is. So one could be very accepting, the other one could not. Uh, And, for example, sometimes the parent who's more accepting is always trying to, um, if you like, protect the parent who is less able to accept it from whatever is happening. And that's, that's quite tiresome. Some parents say, well, I want him to be... And it tends to be... This is not a, a... by any means uh, a law <laughs> of any kind but it tends to be the men who abandon the home uh, generally not, not, but not always Why is that do you think? Are there are the sort of expectations and sort of the, the sort of ideological picture of fatherhood you know is that perhaps even stronger for fathers? I mean our fathers do they you know have even more sort of you know, restricted views as to what they think parents parenting should be. Is there any sort of particular gender? It's hard to tell. I roles? don't know. It's um, you know. I think for some fathers, they don't realize how much they can contribute, so they they themselves underestimate their contribution. So they feel a bit redundant. They feel the the mother has a better understanding of the child's needs. And therefore, they feel that they're a bit like a spare part, or they don't know how to do this or that, or or you're better at this than I am, which is a bit of a cop out as, as well, yeah. because even if she's better than you, you can learn. You know, practice, as we know, makes perfect. So, yeah. um, I'm not sure, but and it, I think it happens. This happens in society anyway. Yeah, yeah, with, does, with yeah. you know, I mean, it's, men, not, it's not uh, uh, exclusive to no, no. children with learning disabilities. You're right. You're right. Of course, and and men tend to find it harder to talk, talk openly about their feelings, don't yes, they? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I have seen some fathers in uh, <laughs> in my work as well, and sometimes mm. the couples have come together. But that's a stigma thing as well, isn't it? You know, you, you know, sort of, sort of your your society is is telling men. I mean, they're getting it from somewhere, the, these ideas that talking about your feelings is bad or makes you weak or makes you less of a man. You know, that's, that's a problem, isn't it? That's a socio-cultural but, issue. Yes, that's a, that's, contributing. that's a whole different conversation, isn't it? Mm. That's sort of what mm. uh, lately 
There has been. It might be contributing to why. Yes. You know, you're. you're I think. Well, I think men generally talk less. Yeah. Uh, women tend to talk more about everything, whether it's schoolgate conversation or or anything else. Uh, Lola, uh, I wanted to say um, I've heard from a lot of parents um, looking back when their relationships were broken down years later that maybe from the start of the when the diagnosis was given um, a lot of the focus was put on the mother by the professionals and immediately that alienated the father um, and so along the way the mother sort of got was educated and supported by the professionals the father was at at work and you know had to be the breadwinner or whatever um and that's what led to the breakdown of their relationships and things like that Uh, i've heard that from quite a few people Mm. um i've had a little bit of that personally actually Mm. you know professionals you know uh, almost almost always talking straight to the mother's eyes and and ignoring my presence entirely which, you know, I accept, I understand, but, you know, and I, I deal with it, but, but it could sort of, as James say, that could, that can't really, <laughs> that can't really help, can it? You know, you, it Absolutely. should be shared. Absolutely, no, no, I think yeah. that's, uh, I think that's a big problem and mm. I think that has to change because, um, you know, fathers are very important in families and I, this is the conversation I have with the families I see in my other job in camps. Often the father doesn't even come to the first appointment. I always think, where's the father? Why is he not here? Uh, You know, fathers are a a very important part of the family relation to a child. It's not Mm. just child and mother. So I've always been a strong advocate for the father's presence in the family and father's contribution to the family. Mm. Uh, Particularly when it... In all cases, but when you have a child with special needs, that's going to be a more exhausting task in some ways. Fathers need to be in there. Fathers need to understand the role, and the child will benefit from that too. Uh, the fathers need to not just support the mother, but learn, you know, get to know their child, because children gain different things from their interactions with their father and with their mother. They also need to understand that the father and mother are a couple and that the child is outside that couple and the parents work together to look after them because what happens sometimes is that the child monopolizes the mother particularly a child with special needs the mother in inverted commas understands the child better so the father is left out that that is not going to help the child nor the marriage so you know father and mother need to be united in looking after the child and the child needs to learn to place themselves outside that couple not in it mm. uh, for things to work well so I've been lucky that I've used social media a lot um, to connect with other fathers in particular and maybe what I found out is the importance of having groups of fathers as well as <laughs> mothers you know and the fathers attend and speak you know share their experiences and that kind of thing and that can be very valuable and you know so they're included make sure they're included in the journey as well um, and they're not sort of left outside of the loop on a lot of these things. Yes, Definitely I think that's, that's very important. So Lola, I just wanted to ask you one other question about uh, the work that you do, and that's to do with resilience. What interests me is how you, um, you don't yourself as a professional, or maybe you have, I don't know, um, a, a burnout, you know, emotional experience, emotional exhaustion or psychological exhaustion, because you're having... 
you know, very sensitive conversations, you know, presumably very powerful, emotional conversations, you know, on a regular basis. So, so how do you maintain your own good mental health and, and perhaps, you know, how might other professionals or, or trainees listening to this uh, thinking about providing or, or are providing a similar service um, uh, 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 learn from, from the way that you avoid and prevent emotional exhaustion? Well, there is two things. One of them is that as part of our training as child psychotherapist, we have to be in psychoanalysis for quite a long time. Meaning? Uh, meaning having to see a training analyst for minimum four times a week. And that has to start a year prior to your training and is on for the duration of your training. Plus, it's up to you how long you go afterwards, after you're qualified. And why is that? Why is, that, why is it set up that way? Well, it's very important that you know... You see, you're, working, you're going to be working with vulnerable people. So it's very important that you learn to recognize what belongs to you and what belongs to them. So going over your whole life with a fine tooth comb is very important because you need to know how you are affected by things and that things might be affecting you not because of if you don't do that things might impact you not because of what they're saying but because of what has happened to you and you haven't processed so you know you're at the receiving end of a lot of things that can evoke a lot of things in you wow so that training that experience during training that that uh, um, forensic personal assessment uh, has helped uh, with your Current. That is very, very central mm. Mm. in the psychotherapy training. Yep. Um, and that's helped you today, presumably, mm. with your work. That's one aspect which is very key because then you sort of you learn how things impact you as well. And the other thing is supervision. We all need supervision as clinicians. We all need to have separate contact with another professional, another mind who can help us to understand the challenging patients that we we have. So you're essentially it's talking is the answer, right? I mean, thinking and talking. <laughs> it's, it's you're talking you're and doing thinking, yes. what mm. what your um mm. your your clients are doing, aren't you? Well, I mean, it's good for always, your mental health. There's always yeah, something new, you know. There's yeah. always something that I mean, I've been now working for quite a few years in this field, but there is always something that I'm, that I haven't seen or I haven't heard. So there's always something that might challenge you in ways that you're not expecting. Always, and that's just the nature of, of human relationships. That you know, obviously, without breaking any anonymity or confidentiality, of course. Could you give us an example of, of perhaps something that caught you by surprise and you know emotionally challenged you, and, and how you dealt with it? Of, of course, maintaining mm. uh, privacy. Well, there is always. Uh, we all have areas that we find it harder to. I, I find, for example, parental neglect and mistreatment of their children quite difficult to to listen to understandably um so these are things that you know are things that parent or child says to you what they have had to endure at the hands of their family or the these things are sort of stretch our capacities quite a lot um you know because it goes against the grain of you know parents looking after their children and loving them so there are some things that are particularly painful to listen to and presumably then you you use that the supervisory mm. um, uh, mechanism to process yes, and often you go to yeah. your supervisor and you think oh you know this has been so hard i don't know what to do we also however experienced you are you sometimes don't know what to do and you feel like Oof, 
I don't know how to process this. I don't know how I can help this person because you feel slightly overwhelmed. But just the recognition that you feel overwhelmed is important because if you sort of carry on like, oh, well, you know, I'll just do this and that, it's, it doesn't, it's not, you have to be, perhaps what analysis teaches you is that to, you have to get to know your limits and what, you know. And, and that it's okay to have limits. Of course, yeah. and that sometimes we all come across cases that really exceed what we feel we can do at that moment. Then you learn to find a way to work within it if it's possible. But initially you sometimes see a patient or a parent or, or a child or something for the first time and you feel like, whew, you know, this is there's a lot. There's a lot coming your way. And also, see, when you're a therapist, you are sort of, when you're going to see a person for the first time, you're in a particularly receptive, attentive mood. So you're sort of very open to impact, if you like. So sometimes you kind of think, whoa, I was, you, you're taken aback by something that you can't always articulate because you don't know exactly. It could, not, it could be not necessarily something they've said, but something that you felt in their presence that you need to be able to process. So the, the fact that you can recognize that is very important. Otherwise, you will sort of try to bury it or you will act it out or you will decide that they don't need you and you won't want to see them. Or, you know, you can sort of find excuses with yourself to not continue with that work simply because it's challenging in ways that you weren't expecting. Mm, fascinating. And just going back to that point about, um, you know, conversations about neglect and other areas of severe concern... Presumably you have, um, you know, a responsibility to, to sort of report to relevant authorities, right? If there's anything that particularly concerns you. Mm. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Mm. Uh, you know, safeguarding is... It's number one. It's number one. It's, yeah. always, it's always central. Yeah. And you always say to the... When you work with children, you always say to the children that um, everything they say to you is confidential unless mm. you have concerns about their safety. Mm. And I also say that to parents, that mm. what they say to me is confidential. Mm. You know, when you work in a school, a lot of people are already working with that family. So it could be that a lot of your concerns have already been raised. But if I had concerns that I felt I had to raise, I would tell the parent that I need to share that. Mm. because. But it often leads to the parents simply getting more help mm. or something that, you know, an area that's sort of that they may be struggling with. Mm. It's not about reporting and sort of policing behind their back it's not about that it's more about ensuring that they have the support that they need fascinating really really interesting uh so lola is there anything else that you wanted to add or say i just I, perhaps the reason why i agreed to do this podcast is because i think this is an elected area i think having a child with disabilities is challenging and i think as the child grows up the concerns do not diminish um i think you know Contrary to having a child who's neurotypical, as they grow up, they find their own way and they make their own life. And, you know, mm. um, I think having a child with special needs is not like that. And I think that a lot of parents are concerned about the future, who's going to look after them, how are they going to manage the degree of vulnerability that they have and, and how that's going to work out for them. So I think, you know, my hope is that when I work with parents, the parents will develop better better skills and, and they will become more resilient and more able to make the decisions that they'll have to make. Uh, but I think, I suppose I'm saying this because I think it's not 
perhaps differently from other aspects of mental health, this is a chronic situation. Their, li- their child or their life is not going to change in that aspect. It's going to evolve into different stages. But it's, that concern is going to stay there. And, and I think parents need support. And I would like to see special schools having somebody like me to, for parents to talk to. because It seems so obvious in a way, doesn't it? I think it, it yeah. does. It does seem very obvious. And, then, and I know, for example, when I, when I first started doing this all those years ago, when I was going to the, to the CAMS meetings of the part of learning disabilities, they were, they were very pleased because they haven't got the resources. The NHS doesn't always have the resources to provide this sort of support for all parents with children have special needs. It's a lot of clinicians' time and it's a lot of... Um, they normally work with parents when there is a crisis point, but not as an ongoing sort of alongside... But why is that? I mean, they have resource, right? They're just viewing, they're they're sort of allocating their resources in ways that they're prioritising. But why isn't this more of a priority, do you think? Because it should be, shouldn't it? It should be. Mental health is so integral to to Mm. everything, you know, as as James said, and you said, the well-being of the, the child, him or herself. You know, with poor mental health also brings... Uh, you know, many costs to the NHS, doesn't mm, it? It does. So it's a sort of, you know, a cost-saving exercise if you, if you want to think yes, about money. it's a preventive take care. function. Yeah, it's preventative, isn't mm. it? So why, what's going on? Why, why are we not... Why is this not more well-funded, you know, more you know, more sort of prioritised by commissioners? Or, or do you think maybe it's changing? Or I would like it? it to change. I don't see it changing at the moment. I don't think the NHS is any richer at this point. Uh, and I think these are, you're right, these are decisions that the school has to make. Interestingly, the two schools who where I worked for 18 months didn't buy into the service when they had to buy it, even though the results were actually quite good. Uh, but they just felt that their budget didn't allow for it. So it's it's got a lot to do with, with the mind of the person at the helm, really. Mm, uh, the vision. If, if the head teacher... Mm has the vision mm. uh, that this is an important area because also frankly parents tend to go to the head teacher when they have a problem so perhaps because the teacher the head teacher who employed me was probably <laughs> overwhelmed by parents i'm not sure but the parents tend to go to somebody in the senior management team to, when they have a problem mm. uh, and if that's if that's connected with mental health that's not a good mm. not a good situation is it because they're no, not because they're the not teachers trained are not are not equipped health. to yeah. nor have they got the time and mm. you know so um it, it's a decision that has to do with how schools allocate their budgets and how much they prioritize this or they see this as a priority or i haven't got an answer for that i, I think mm. different schools operate in different ways yeah i absolutely agree that it should be a priority mental health is crucial and we'd love to see more and more schools um doing the kind of service this kind of implementing this type of service in their in their setting i'd say in any school really right mm. should have an in-house um psychotherapist or counselor well, a lot of schools do have school counseling a lot of mainstream schools and that tends to be for children in my experience i was once a school counselor so that happens uh, less so for parents and families, even though there are some places where that also happens. I think for special schools it should be mandatory, really, because the challenges are greater. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think 
this should be an integral part of any special school provision. I do, and I hope, you know, you never know. <laughs> so politicians listening, make this a mandatory thing for, for, for special schools, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it, it could only do wonderful things as it has done in your in your instance, right? <laughs> well, it has I think, had a big impact. You know, it's it's now quite established and I think the teachers now can easily sort of spot parents who might uh, benefit from talking to someone. I think, you know, it takes a little while to get embedded in the school culture. I think I, now I'm sort of quite get established. Trust. Most people know me and... Mm. Um, trust is presumably a, yes, an important issue. Yes, <clears throat> trust is an important issue and confidentiality and, and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's. I, I like. I really like my work in in the school. Been very happy there, and I hope to continue. <laughs> I hope so. Also, um, I just want to say thank you for all of the amazing work that you're doing, you're and welcome. for coming on the podcast. That's fine. I've really, really enjoyed. it I found it really fascinating. James, have you got any other questions or comments? Just um, like to thank you as well, and um, I, I think it's really, really important what you're doing, and I hope. Um, there's some uh, head teachers out there as well listening um, and you know because what you're doing is um, strengthening the parents to look after their children and uh, eventually the outcome for the for the child will be better in the in the end of the things you know so uh, mm, that's the hope yes yeah. I mean children are very important but parents are very important too <laughs> you know yeah. it's it's about the welfare of families really uh, Sometimes, something I forget to add, siblings, siblings are also part of this. And the school where, where I work has some activities for siblings, which are very good. But sometimes parents have brought siblings to my sessions as well, because the siblings often find it difficult to have a, a, a brother or a sister with such a level of need. Mm. And sometimes they feel embarrassed or they don't know how to tell their friends what's happening with their brother or sister. You know, so yeah. I have done work with siblings, and that's also very important. I think so. It's really yeah. it's about the well-being of the whole family. Sometimes I don't work with siblings, but the parents have find a better language to explain to the non-disabled child uh, how to support the disabled child or what they need to do or how to you know. So the the sort of there is always an effect in some way, direct or indirect, uh, for the benefit yeah. of the family. How might how might people get in contact with you, Lola? I'm thinking about those head teachers, the or commissioners, <laughs> or policymakers that might be interested in in knowing more about what you do and, and, uh, well, and the various um, implementation uh, methods. They can Google my name, Lola Alvarez Romano, and I'm a child and adolescent psychotherapist from the Tavistock Centre, and um, I'm I'm in the Association of Child Psychotherapists website under the Find the Therapist heading. I'll also put your details on our podcast episode yes. description. Yeah, that's that's fine. Thank you. So yes, I can. You know, like, like I said, the Association of Child Psychotherapists is a is a way of getting in touch with me. Um, and I work because I work for the NHS and I also work privately. My details are there. Fantastic. Okay, uh, really enjoyed having you on. Thank you so so much your time and i wish you all the best for your future endeavors same to you i hope you know everything you do makes people more aware and and we can change things bit by bit yeah that's my hope exactly yeah thanks a lot james thank you thank, thank you. you okay thank you see you soon thank you Bye-bye. bye bye